to give to this last worker as I give to you, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first and the first last? This is the gospel of Christ. Father, we pray simply this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. I want to begin this morning with a question. It's a question that I've asked before. It's a question that I think is important for us to consider. Many of the parables get at this question, and the question is simply, what comes to your mind when you think of God? So I like doing word associations. It's kind of how I think. So oftentimes in small groups, if I'm wanting to get people to talk, I will say something like this. I say God, you think blank. wonder what words you associate with him off the top of your head. Not words where you're trying to impress other people. Not where you feel the pressure to be profound or funny. I just wonder truly, what do you think about God? There's a great BBC rendition of Sherlock Holmes that's on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen this series or not. Um, it's with Benedict Cumberbatch. This, I guess that's his real name. It's amazing. Uh, Sharp-looking young fellow, I hear, uh, from the ladies. Anyway, Sherlock Holmes in this BBC series uh, is really fascinating on a number of different levels. But in the second season, uh, Sherlock is giving a toast at John Watson's wedding. And there's various things that are pretty amazing about his toast that would kind of be a good sociological or cultural study. But at one point, Sherlock says this in his speech, kind of off the cuff about God. God is a ludicrous fantasy designed to provide a career opportunity for the family idiot. God is a ludicrous fantasy. Uh, Of course, it's just a show, but the truth is that that sentiment would be echoed throughout the Western world in so many ways, particularly, unfortunately, in places like Great Britain. That's what Sherlock and arguably the mass amount of people throughout the Western world today think about God. It's not true about the rest of the world, by the way. But what do you think about God? A.W. Tozer, who writes historically um, this, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. A man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than that religion's idea of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most important fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives about God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, get this, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her 
idea of God? What is your idea of God? Sherlock Holmes, speaking on behalf of Great Britain, thinks God's a ludicrous fantasy. A.W. Tozer says, whatever your idea of God is, it's the most important thing about you. C.S. Lewis kind of takes that quote and turns it a little bit upside down, not denying the truth that what Tozer is saying, but adding to it in many ways. C.S. Lewis actually said, in the weight of glory, the most important thing about us is actually not what we think about God. That's important. But C.S. Lewis said the most important thing about us is what God thinks of us. A little more redemptive there, right? So I want us to take those two notions, both by Tozer and C.S. Lewis, and look at this parable this morning because the text and the story in Matthew chapter 20 give us a really clear idea about who God is. And it also gives us an opportunity to respond and to reflect what that means for us. So what we think about God, and also it shows us what God thinks about us, and then we can reflect a little bit on what the implications of that are uh, for us. So this parable is typically referred to as the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Um, Of course, that's not uh, textual. That, That was not in the Greek You know, we put these headings in the Bible, and and like this parable and other parables like the prodigal son, it's probably inaccurately named. Uh, Even if you take the Luke 15 passage, it would be much more accurate at least to speak about that as the parable of the lost sons, but it might even be more accurate in Luke 15 to speak about the parable of the prodigal father, because prodigal simply means spendthrift and lavish. And the Father in that parable is such with His grace and His love. Well, in our passage today, I would encourage you to think that this passage is not primarily about the laborers in the vineyard. This passage is primarily about a compassionate and generous landowner. You see, all of Scripture is centered around God. It's not centered around man. At the heart of Christian theology is a big God and a little man, and we ought to, re- we ought to rejoice and embrace and that reality. God is the hero of every passage. God is the focal point. God is the axis through which all of this story turns. So this morning, from Matthew 20, I want us to see primarily that God, represented by this landowner, is a compassionate provider. Matthew 20 gives us a picture and an idea of who God is as a compassionate generous, sovereign provider. Matthew 20, focused on this landowner as a compassionate provider. I wonder if that word or that concept came into your mind when I ask you to think about your idea of God. Did you think about him as compassionate? Did you think about him as a provider? Did you think about him as spendthrift with his generosity? Did you think about him as sovereign? 
You know, Charles Spurgeon said at the beginning of your bulletin, he didn't say it at the beginning of your bulletin, but we put what he said at the beginning of your bulletin, that not an atom moves, as in A-T-O-M, more or less than God wishes. He says God ordains dust following, falling and dancing in light as much as he ordains the fall of an avalanche. That's how sovereign he is. Do you see God as this compassionate provider? Let's unpack this in a little more detail of how we see in this passage that God is a passionate provider. I'll go ahead and tell you the ways in which I see it, and then we'll look in more detail. We see him cultivating, we see Him seeking, we see Him dignifying, we see Him offering justice and grace and sovereignty. First of all, God is a compassionate provider because He's cultivating a plan. This landowner has a vineyard. I guess they liked grape juice a lot in the Bible, right? Now this guy's cultivating this vineyard and he needs workers to work in this vineyard. I had the opportunity years ago to be in Southern California and take a trip to see various campuses that I was working with, or a colleague of mine was working with, um, from Southern California all the way to Northern California. And we had been in LA, and then we went to Santa Barbara, and once we got outside of Santa Barbara, and we're going to start to go on PCH1, Pacific Coast Highway 1, uh, it wasn't long before we got out of Santa Barbara, and you just saw fields. Fields of strawberries, which were amazing. Uh, as soon as we saw them, I'd never seen anything like it before. And I said, John, we've got to stop. We've got to stop and eat some of those strawberries. And then after the strawberry fields, we saw other fields, fields of grapes. And guess what I said? We've got to stop. I know it's early. We're going to be the first tasting of the day, but we're going breakfast wine. It was great. These vineyards are massive. But one of the things that's massive about them is how many people are needed to work them. How many people are needed to cultivate the soil, to plant, to harvest, to pick? Because there's a great plan. And the plan is tasty fruit and really good wine. Well, this landowner has a vineyard He's cultivating a plan and he needs people to work towards his plan. Then, of course, analogously, if we see God as this landowner, he is cultivating a plan and planting a vineyard called the kingdom of God. God is cultivating his kingdom. He is building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven as he moves us towards the new heavens and the new earth. And guess what? He needs laborers to help cultivate his plan. That brings us to the next idea of him being this compassionate provider. Not only does he have a plan and does he cultivate that plan, but he has a way in which he cultivates the plan. And the way in which he cultivates the plan, he seeks people. You can't miss it throughout the passage that time and time again, initially, the landowner himself goes to the market seeking workers. And then the landowner, again, himself initiates the relationship with these workers. Not once, 
not twice, not three times. Throughout the day, he's got a plan of cultivating his vineyard. God's got a plan of building his kingdom. And how is God going to bring people into his kingdom? Is he going to build it so they will come some sort of field of dreams? Not at all. The way that God is building his kingdom, he is going out personally, specifically in the person of Christ, seeking laborers to join with him in his mission called the kingdom. He initiates. He seeks. And that's the way it's always been and that's the way it always will be. We even see this in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve decide to go their own way and then they go and they hide. And once they start engaging with God again, the question is, how did they start to engage with God again? Was it on their initiation? No. It was God simply saying, where are you? It was God seeking then, it is God seeking in this parable, and it is God seeking now. He's a compassionate provider that cultivates a plan, and he's also a compassionate provider that seeks people to work with him and for him. But in so seeking, something else happens. He dignifies those who he asks to join him. He dignifies them. You see, it's not easy to be unemployed. I confess that I cannot speak through any personal, real journey in adulthood of what it's like to be unemployed, but I've talked to many people who have experienced unemployment. And among other things that unemployment brings upon a person, it's an experience, I'm not saying this is true, of feeling undignified. You see, because we were made to work. Even in the beginning in Genesis, God gives us a creation mandate, which could be summarized simply as this, to faithfully put our hands to the plow of whatever God has set in front of us. And there's nothing inherently sinful or broken, by the way, about work. I have every reason to believe that there will be work without weeds, that's the kicker, um, in the new heavens and the new earth. But you see... To not be working, to be standing in a marketplace, which was a place for hire. It's almost like they were standing publicly at a temp agency in this parable, waiting fastidiously for someone to take them. And that's not an easy place to be. It's an undignified place to be. It's an embarrassing place to be. It's a hard place to be. It's a place to be that if you don't get hired, you go home again, number one, not providing well for your family, which is your duty, and then number two, having to wear the shame and the embarrassment that you can't provide for your family. But here comes this landowner cultivating his plan, seeking people, and then dignifying them. Dignifying them by employing them dignifying them by not giving them a hand out, which gives us some indication on how we care in this world and do justice and mercy, but a hand up. I mean, this landowner simply could have just gone and given them money, right? And that's, I know that's a long discussion and one that we're willing to have and the one we're going to engage in as a community, but not at the moment. But in this passage, he doesn't just hand out, he hands up and brings them with them with him 
and in the midst of doing, dignifies them. It reminds me when we sing in Be Thou My Vision, Be Thou My Dignity, My Delight. Uh, God dignifies us by calling us to be a part of what He's doing in the world. Uh, I feel like, honestly, in many ways that this passage warrants some deeper reflection on the concept and the idea of work. I'm going to choose this morning not to take an excursus uh, that I even prepared to some degree uh, to reflect on work, but we'll do that at another time. I'll simply say this about work in addition to what already has been said about it. We've got to figure out a way as Christians for faith and work to intersect more seamlessly. I've prayed before, you've heard me say before, work, whether you work in the home, outside the home, whether you have a great admirable job or whether you have a menial job, whether you're white collar or blue collar, whether you're young or old, it is what we do the vast majority of our waking hours. And if we can't figure out a way for our faith to influence our work, then we're missing what it means to truly walk with Christ. These things are not separate. We live all of life under the Lord of all. And by the way, you sure do not have to have a job working in vocational ministry in order for your faith and your work to intersect. Luther would talk a lot. This is actually something very primary in the Reformation that's not talked about a lot and also very controversial, but he would love to talk about what Peter mentions as the priesthood of all believers. And Luther was very quick to say that the minister or the priest is no more spiritual than the farmer, which I I love that point. It takes a lot of pressure off me and my vocation. Um, But also it's something that people really in that time didn't like. Um, Abraham Kuyper, former prime minister of the Netherlands, said, there is nothing in all of creation, there is no square inch that Christ has not declared, this is mine. Which includes work. And includes our jobs. Because we're not just working to get paid. We're not just working to make sure our kids have lunches at school. Ultimately, we are laborers in this vineyard of the kingdom. And when you're making a lunch, and when you're sweeping the floor, and when you're counting credits and debits, you're building the kingdom. You're a laborer in what God is doing. You are holding back the spiritual forces of evil that are here in this present darkness by seeking to cultivate a faithful presence by putting your hands to the plow that God has given you. This landowner knows how important work and dignity is, so he seeks people out and he dignifies them. Not only does, do we see this generous uh, compassion provision from the landowner here um, in those ways, but we also see that he's just and he's fair. He, he negotiates with them a, 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 a day's wage. This is a pretty universal increment, a denarius for a day's work. And he gives people a denarius for a day's work. Even the people that have worked all day 
he gives them what he said he would give them. And then even the people that work just a little bit get the same, which just shows that he's generous and that he's gracious and that I think he likes to get under people's skin in a loving way with his grace and with his mercy. And then lastly, we see that God or this landowner is a compassionate provider because he's sovereign. I mean, he's running the show. It's really clear. It's his vineyard. It's his plan. It's his initiation. It's his money, after all. And it's his justice and it's his mercy and it's his dignity that he bestows on all these people. And he wants to make sure that everybody that worked for him understands this is my deal. I'm glad you've joined with me and I'm glad you're working. Friend, he even calls these workers that are grumbling friends. And by the way, if your mind has gone to the parable that I mentioned earlier, the parable of the lost sons, and your mind in that parable went to the older brother, you're right on. You see, the older brother begrudged the father's generosity. And here, the workers that worked all day begrudged the landowner's generosity. And the Pharisees and even the Jews who were Christians begrudged God's generosity to Gentiles. And you and I inexplicably begrudge God's generosity to people that fall on the other side of the line than we do. Whether that line be our skin color, whether that line be our political position, whether that line be our socioeconomic status. We draw all these lines, but the line essentially is those who deserve and those who don't. And when we think like that, we begrudge generosity because we don't understand grace and we don't understand the gospel. And we actually have a very low view of our brokenness and our own neediness. And that's where I want to end with reflecting a little bit. What, we, what do we do with this? What do we do with this reflection upon this owner who is this compassionate provider who cultivates this plan, who seeks people, who, who dignifies people, who offers justice and fairness. All these things are true about God that, we, that, refl- that require and, and deserve deeper reflection. And then his grace and his generosity and his sovereignty. What do we do with all these things? I think first of all, we've got to confess, we don't like grace. Kind of a buzzword right now in some good ways. I mean, it, it should be. It's central from Genesis to Revelation. But the truth is, we don't really like it. Uh, and we have to own that internally. We live in a society that doesn't like it. We work in jobs and relationships that don't revolve around it in any way. We live in a meritocracy, as David Brooks, the writer for the Atlantic and New York Times, talks about regularly. And as a result of it, I would encourage us just to confess honestly that we hate grace. Might sound funny. I don't mean to be over the top or hyperbolic, but we really don't. I remember in 1999, I'd moved to St. Louis and some friends of mine and I were going to go to a concert, um, band The Counting Crows. Uh, some of you might be fans. One of, the, one of the best 
pop bands, I think, uh, that has existed in the last 30 years for what it's worth. Uh, But they had released a new album, This Desert Life. It was going to be at the Fox Theater in St. Louis, and it was general admission. And this was going to be cool uh, because if you got there early enough, you can be as close as you want. Um, It's a theater much like the Tennessee Theater. Uh, Well, I I was in graduate school at the time, and I had class all day, so I couldn't get there early. But I knew some people that were going to get there early. And what it meant to get there early was, let's say the doors opened at 7, they were going to get there at 7 a.m. to stand in line downtown in St. Louis outside the Fox Theater for the concert. Well, sure enough, they got there, they did that. I did class throughout the day. I did other things throughout the day. I rolled downtown at about, mm, I don't know, start parking at 6.30, get out of my car, kind of saunder up. The line is like wrapped around the building, around the alleys or whatever. And sure enough, my friends, guess where they are? First. And I kind of casually, you know, walk my way past the line and acting like I don't have an agenda here. And it's about 6.57 and, you know, 6.58 and I'm just kind of acting, you know, coy. And then sure enough, you start to see the doors jiggle and they open, and right at that moment, I step right next to my friend, and I walk in first. Next thing I know, I'm in the orchestra pit, like bumping fist with Adam Duritz. Um, that's really not fair. I mean, I did nothing. My friends waited all day. Everybody else waited most of the day, and here I am benefiting from their work. You know that's true for all of us spiritually, right? Like you know that Jesus is the one that stood in line all day. And that grace is riding his coattails through his substitutionary atonement into the kingdom. And we have a hard time with that. We hate bandwagon fans. Never knew so many people like the Cubs. And true Cubs fans are like, dude, you don't understand. We've suffered forever. I wish they still would suffer. A couple more thoughts before we close. This is further evidence that we don't like grace. Why do we have such a hard time with deathbed conversion? We should be thankful because nobody deserves love and grace, but God gives it. We should also be compelled to join with him in this work. One of the problems with the older brother in the parable of the lost sons is he actually should have gone out and sought the younger brother to bring him back. And instead, he stayed home feeling good about himself. And then when the younger brother came back, he begrudged the father's generosity. We'll close with this thought. And it's the thought of resting in God's sovereignty. You caught it at the end, right? Don't I have the right to do what I choose? Our last point of application is just bowing to God's control and sovereignty. Let me close this in prayer.
Father, we thank you for stories. We thank you for narratives. They speak to us. We thank you how you meet us where we are. We thank you that you show us a clearer, more accurate picture and idea of who you are. I pray that you would continue to refine our understanding of you or even give us, for the first time ever, an accurate picture of who you are. Thank you for your compassion and your generosity. Forgive us, Lord, for the fact that we begrudge it and that we really hate grace. We like to earn things because we're foolish. We like to be in control because we live under an illusion. I pray that you would help us to simply receive the gospel to receive grace, and to put our faith in your control and your sovereignty. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.